previously on Will Be Wild. If we did a disservice, it's that we covered up the incompetence. We covered up the danger that he was. And in doing so, it made it easier for the American public to assume, like, things are fine. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. I, I felt crushed, honestly. All of our work, all of the hours I spent, my team spent, it wasn't nearly enough. As you began to see people amassing at the Capitol on TV, were you thinking, okay, there's a direct line between those challenges and what is happening outside the Capitol? Absolutely. 100%, this was the inevitable outcome by the continued pressure of the big lie. We are in the main dome right now. We are rocking it. They're throwing grenades. They're freaking shooting people with paintballs, but we're in here. Major General Mike Tahiri is used to a certain amount of turbulence. He grew up in Iran, and when he was 11, just before the Ayatollah took over, he moved with his family to Wyoming. After college, he joined the Air Force and later the National Guard. He's flown food into Somalia, moved troops and fuel around Afghanistan, and dropped red slurry fire retardant from a C-130 onto burning Rocky Mountain hillsides. So when someone like that says something like this, you pay attention. Just watching this take place, I thought, you know, almost 31 years wearing a uniform. And I'm thinking to myself, this is like the worst day I've ever had in uniform. That day wasn't January 6th, 2021. It was half a year earlier, June 1st, 2020. It's a Monday morning. Tahari arrives at his office in the Pentagon and logs on to his first meeting of the day. We were on our little, you know, I kind of call it Hollywood Squares by then. We were well into COVID, so we weren't physically sitting in the same room together. It's a standing meeting with top brass, the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It might have been, hey, what's going on with the latest budget package and get an update from legislative affairs and all that kind of stuff. It was kind of a routine day-to-day thing. Nothing to do with, you know, the update over the weekend. Or if it was, it was on the periphery. That thing on the periphery was a Black Lives Matter protest that had taken place in Lafayette Square, a little park just outside the White House. Things had gotten out of hand. There were fires, clashes with police. Some protesters had gotten past a fence that had been put up as an extra barrier around the White House. At one point, the Secret Service rushed the president into a secure underground location. It seemed publicly the president was embarrassed by being moved into some other bunker or something like that. Again, the meeting's not really about any of that, so they get on with things. And after a while, Tahari notices movement in the little square that contains Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense. Somebody, like, taps him on the shoulder and says... a note and says, gotta go, to go deal with this apparent um, anxiety coming out of the White House. Esper disappears. The meeting comes to an end. What follows over the next several hours wasn't just Tahari's worst day in uniform. For people who spend their time thinking about the worst-case scenario for our country, it was a terrifying day, as unimaginable in its way as a mob storming the Capitol, and a warning about what might go wrong in the future. 
from Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. It's Will Be Wild. I'm Ilya Meritz. Chapter 7, War Games. The Monday morning of that routine video call, Lafayette Square was closed down to the public, but a demonstration formed just outside. It was nothing like the crowds or chaos of the weekend. It was peaceful. Still, Trump is worked up, determined to flex his muscle. That morning at the White House, he fumes that he wants to use the Insurrection Act to put active-duty military on the streets. The last time that happened was during the L.A. riots in 1992. The sense was that the show of force was needed. The president, I think, felt like he looked weak, and he wanted to show that he could be powerful. And Secretary Esper, who left that morning meeting and headed to the White House at Trump's beckoning, is now involved in figuring out exactly what that show of force should be. It's pretty extreme. Under pressure from Trump, Esper orders the 82nd Airborne to be moved up from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to a base outside Washington, D.C. The 82nd Airborne is a division of the Army, a rapid reaction force that specializes in what they call forcible entry parachute assaults. So when you're moving the 82nd Airborne, or you're moving elements of an active force with lethal kinetic kill ability that exceeds anything the American people have, and you're moving them to deter what? To deter people speaking. I think he looked at the military as his personal military. I don't know that he ever really realized that the oath the military takes and, and you know, is support and defend the Constitution. He's part of that whole process, <laughs> but just part of it, right? And so I think this was more of a show of force, kind of to placate him. Tahiri says the president's demands on June 1st hit the Pentagon like an asteroid. Everything stopped, everything gets quiet for a minute, and then all of a sudden everybody, you know, comes out of the woodwork. As quickly as they can, military leaders hatch a plan to satisfy Trump's demand for boots on the ground while avoiding the deployment of active-duty soldiers. The plan involves Mike Teheri's department, the National Guard Bureau. He's the director of staff there. All that day, they're frantically trying to move National Guard units to D.C. Because the concern was, well, if we don't do this, what could he do, right? You know, I mean, what are the... Well, he, he may even break even more glass, right? So maybe we can keep him from breaking all the glass by just kind of tiptoeing in with guardsmen. You know, that's enough muscle then to kind of hold him back. What follows is a blur of phone calls and meetings. So normally, things that I saw take a couple weeks were taking minutes. You know, people were giving basically verbal orders. There's a term people in the Pentagon use, VOCO, verbal orders of the commander. You can make anything happen in a hurry with VOCO. Means you act fast and let the bureaucracy catch up later. Basically, you know, it's just go out and make it happen. There's one other thing bothering to Harry. Normally, the guard sees itself as a supporting force, called in at the request of a governor or a mayor. Not today. And so at one point that morning, the quote I got back from General Milley was, the mayor's no longer in charge, that the mayor is not running this operation anymore. Tahiri's retired now, so he can speak freely. General Milley did not respond to our requests for comment. While all this is unfolding at the Pentagon, 
there's a meeting with America's governors taking place around noon over at the White House. It's been organized by the COVID task force that Vice President Mike Pence oversees. In late spring 2020, about 2,000 people a day were dying from COVID in America. But when Trump gets on the call, he hardly says a word about the coronavirus. All he wants to talk about are the Black Lives Matter protests spreading across the country. For nearly an hour, it's pretty much a rambling monologue. The Washington Post got a recording of the call. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. He describes protesters as terrorists. He uses the word dominate again and again. Defense Secretary Mark Esper is on the call, too. He mimics Trump's language, telling governors they need to dominate the battle space. There was staff where we looked around the room and looked at each other and were appalled at what, how that meeting was going and the things were happening. Olivia Troy worked as a top aide to Vice President Mike Pence at the time, coordinating the coronavirus task force. And I'm also, by the way, slightly annoyed because I'm also focused on COVID, and this is a COVID task force governor's meeting. It was not a meeting to berate governors. When the call ends, Troy decides she needs to take a walk, check out the protest outside. I cannot be sitting inside in my bubble in the White House while the world around me is burning. I need to go out and see this firsthand. What she sees is not a mob on the brink of violence. I saw peaceful protesters. I remember a mom and her daughter on their knees and holding signs that said Black Lives Matter. And I'm just watching people exercise their right and their voices and standing up for others. And so I think it's distressing for me to look back on it now because I get very upset because I was so upset that night when I see how this whole thing plays out. Late that afternoon... Guardsmen in camo arrive at Lafayette Square. There was a a big truckload of National Guard troops that rolled right into the White House, and then they were moved over into the park there, uh, lined up behind the park police and the U.S. Secret Service. And then, around 6.30 p.m., the square starts to fill with smoke. Officers with clubs and shields move in on the protesters. They look like soldiers, but they're not soldiers. And they're not the National Guard. The guard is there, standing by, watching, as officers from the Bureau of Prisons and Parks Police drive demonstrators away using chemical grenades and pepper balls. It was a surprise to me when they did the kind of the clearing action down there. You know, because, I mean, if you looked at the video prior to that, just a bunch of people sitting around, it looked like playing tambourines as far as I could tell, right? Once the protesters are gone, Trump emerges from the White House. He walks across the park, trailed by Esper and the Joint Chiefs Chairman, General Mark Milley. Milley looks imposing in his camo combat uniform. Mr. President, are you prepared to use the military against U.S. citizens? Press, press, we're going. By the way, we're just seeing now, these are live images of the president in front of St. John's Church. Is he speaking there? Can we, are we going to listen to this? Looks like he is just... uh, That's a photo opportunity, it appears. If he does start to speak, we will keep you posted. The sun goes down. There's a curfew. But a group of protesters gathers in downtown D.C. anyway. That night, five National Guard helicopters take to the sky and move in on them. One chopper dips as low as about 45 feet, according to a Washington Post investigation. It shakes the trees, sends dust and debris flying. Protesters scatter. An internal Pentagon review later determined the choppers were medevac aircraft. The pilots were not trained for civil disturbances. And yet, there they were. 
A Defense Department spokesman told us one pilot was reprimanded. Two days after Defense Secretary Esper talked about dominating the battle space, he goes in front of the cameras and strikes a very different tone. Racism is real, he says. He calls the killing of George Floyd murder. And he says now is not the time to invoke the Insurrection Act against protesters. He said, uh, uh, I've worked very hard to keep the department out of politics, which is very hard uh, these days as we move closer and closer to an election. Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley does his own walk back. He records a video message saying it was wrong to appear in uniform with the president for what turned out to be a photo op. Created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I have learned from. And I sincerely hope we all can learn from it. As for Mike Teheri, his retirement was already scheduled, but he ended up leaving a few weeks earlier than planned. We had basically brought people in uniform, potentially to stand there and use those people in uniform against citizens of the United States. And that was just beyond my conception of my original oath. We're getting ready to go to war with the American people. That's the battle space. On June 1st, 2020, the Pentagon dramatically overreacted. On January 6th, 2021, it went in the opposite direction. People noticed the difference right away. If you thought that what happened here in Washington last summer uh, outside the White House when they cleared Lafayette Square was bad, well, this was, you know, even more dramatic and unsettling and scary. And uh... The Capitol was besieged by MAGA hatters in all manner of crazy costumes. It was like a psychotic Price is Right audience forcibly taking control of the Plinko wheel. The National Guard was called in slowly police were very laid back compared to the Black Lives Matter protests. There is some difference in the federal response uh, at Lafayette Square and at the United States Capitol. We did not see, for example, uh, deployment of those uh, military personnel on the Capitol grounds. Of course, on June 1st, the protesters were BLM. On January 6th, a Trump rally turned into a riot incited by the president. When I saw that there were no police that lined that Capitol, when I saw that the National Guard had not been called out to try to help. Leon Panetta arguably knows as much about how the government works as anyone alive. My first reaction was, what the hell are people thinking, for God's sakes? Our Capitol is now vulnerable to a mob attacking it. Panetta served as White House Chief of Staff under Bill Clinton and as CIA director and secretary of defense under Barack Obama. He's also been a congressman. He's been a Democrat and a Republican. I talked with him a couple of times over the course of our reporting, once over a Zoom call and once at the Panetta Institute, just outside his hometown of Monterey, California. Military leaders who have testified about this have said three hours is actually fast. When you're talking about the United States military, they like to go in with a plan, battle ready, fully understanding what's happening. And and it's a big ship and it doesn't turn that quickly. You disagree? No, I mean, I, I understand all of those arguments, but that's why we prepare plans. That's why we prepare for events. That's why we prepare is to make sure that it doesn't take three hours to respond to a national crisis. So 
I understand all of the arguments about, you know, it's a slow ship to turn. Yeah, it's a slow ship to turn. If you have no plans, if you have no preparation, if you're basically sitting on your butt and watching things, it's a slow ship to turn. You're right. But that's not supposed to happen. The way Panetta sees it, we need to understand why the Pentagon wasn't prepared on January 6th. There was plenty of intel that people were mobilizing and targeting Congress. One thing the military does constantly is to develop war plans against any adversary so that we're ready to uh, go to war if we have to. And this was a situation where it was clear to me that planning had to be done in order to secure the Capitol and make sure that uh, this crowd would not in any way disrupt our democracy. Even without advanced prep, he says, they should have quickly reached for VOCO, verbal orders of the commander, like they did on June 1st. Give the order now, let the lawyers sort it out later. In this instance, it's very important to give vocal commands and to follow through on those commands and make sure that that action is taking place. And yet, it took three hours for the First National Guard to arrive at the Capitol. Yeah, that's inexcusable. That's inexcusable. He's not just speaking from hindsight. Even before the riot, Panetta was worried about what could happen. Okay, uh, let me see. I've got to pull this up. There we go. Uh, what, What would you like me to read? On his computer, he pulls up an open letter published in the Washington Post on January 3rd, three days before the insurrection. It's signed by all 10 former defense secretaries. The headline reads, Involving the military in election disputes would cross into dangerous territory. As former secretaries of defense, we hold a common view of the solemn obligations of the United States Armed Forces and the Defense Department. Each of us swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution. The letter isn't directly about fear of insurrection. But it's related, and worse, in a way. A fear inspired by what happened back in June in Lafayette Square. That Trump would reject the certification of Joe Biden and enlist the military on his side. When this letter was published, it really freaked me out. And so I asked Panetta if scaring people was the goal. He said no. They were trying to remind elected officials that they shouldn't use the military in an unconstitutional way. Although it seems to me that ideally this isn't something they should need reminding about. Yeah, I think it was also meant to try to make clear to those who were serving in the Trump administration who had a role to play with regards to the military that they stand strong and abide by their oath to office to make sure that the military was not misused. I think you're saying if someone were to get an illegal or unconstitutional order, that that, that they would feel empowered to not follow that order. You would hope so. You would hope so. When that letter was published, Trump hadn't conceded the election. He was still claiming without evidence that there was widespread fraud. And the lesson from June 1st was that he would not hesitate to use the military for his own purposes. And I think for that reason, I think all of us felt we had to publicly take a stand One of the signatures on that letter was from Mark Esper, 
the guy who'd been talking about dominating the battle space on that conference call in June. Trump fired him as Secretary of Defense a week after the November election. And instead of letting the number two at the Pentagon take the reins, Trump picked his own man, a new acting secretary, Christopher Miller. Christopher C. Miller and his subordinates, political appointees, officers, civil servants, are each bound by oath... In the letter, Panetta, Esper, and the others call on Miller and the Pentagon to work with the incoming Biden team for a smooth transition. Quote, they must also refrain from any political actions that undermine the results of the election. Christopher Miller, who was still acting Secretary of Defense on January 6th, has pushed back hard on the idea that he should have moved faster. He says because of the tense situation, and in part because of the letter Panetta and the other secretaries signed, he didn't want to be hasty. I was also very cognizant of the fears and concerns about the prior use of the military in June 2020 response to protests near the White House. This is Miller testifying before the House Oversight Committee in May 2021. Just before the Electoral College college certification, 10 former secretaries of defense signed an op-ed published in the Washington Post warning of the dangers of politicizing and inappropriately using the military. No such thing was going to occur on my watch. But these concerns and hysteria about them nonetheless factored into my decisions regarding the appropriate and limited use of our armed forces to support civilian law enforcement during Electoral College certification. The former secretaries have stayed in touch since writing that letter. I don't want to create the impression that somehow we're a cabal of uh, former secretaries of defense. We basically, you know, just uh, talk. Sometimes it's sports or family. Sometimes, you know the end of America as we know it. And, and what do the other defense secretaries think about the state that our country's in right now? I think they share a lot of the concerns that I have about the fragility of our democracy. Throughout Panetta's career in politics, the loser conceded. It wasn't even a question. I mean, my God, it happens every weekend at football games. And I thought that would happen here. And to see this president reject that and hang on and continue to claim that he won the election is, you know, it's the kind of insanity that you don't expect a president to engage in. Panetta's fear is what happens if the next election produces another sore loser. There's a challenge to the results. And let's say there's a faction that supports it, maybe even within the military. I think it will add fuel to the fire that we've seen created over these last few years. And it may create a sufficient movement in this country that they will try to drag the military, and if not the military's leadership, at least those within the military, to break apart and join in that effort. Basically, it's a scenario where 1-6 meets 6-1. Extremists try to overthrow the government. A sitting president or a challenger calls on the military to support the insurrection. And even if leadership refuses, some of the rank and file heed that call. So you really could have the makings 
of a coup that could literally destroy our democracy. I mean, I, I, I can envision something like that being possible, and that what scares the hell out of me. We'll be right back. I asked Leon Panetta to say more about what a coup might look like or how the military might be forced to pick a side in American politics. He didn't bite. He talked about his faith in the chain of command, particularly the people at the top, to do the right thing. He seems to believe that individuals, more than any system, are what's going to keep our democracy intact. But he didn't sound totally convinced. It turns out, though, that there was a group that was formed specifically to ask, what if, back in 2020? We ran a series of simulations in June of 2020 to anticipate ways in which the, you know, the results of the election might be subverted. And uh, many of the things that we anticipated, in fact, were attempted by the Trump administration. Nils Gilman is an organizer of a brain trust that met for several days. It was a group of heavy hitters, former governors, cabinet secretaries, leaders of the Republican and Democratic parties, legal experts, and retired military officers. 67 players, exploring what Gilman called scenario planning around a contested election. What would happen if we had a president who was unrestrained by the traditional norms of the office and uh, also unrestrained by his political party? And how could such a president use the awesome power of the presidency and the control over federal agencies? Lafayette Square had happened one week earlier. And that added a sense of urgency. It became clear that things that were unthinkable were already beginning to happen. I asked about the scenarios they envisioned back in 2020. A recurring theme was a situation where neither presidential candidate had conceded by Inauguration Day. What we realized at that point was that, in some sense, the military was going to be forced to make a decision about who the official commander-in-chief was, even if they're not recognized as the legitimate president, by some large faction of the country. Literally, the military would decide who gets the nuclear codes, making that person the de facto president. Uh, let me just let me just break in. Like at the moment when you personally sort of registered this, what did you what did that feel like? Oh shit. It felt like oh shit. I mean, I don't even know how to put it any other way. Like, you know, we're not we're we're not in Kansas anymore. So that's one scenario. Neither candidate will concede, and the military picks a winner. Another bad scenario is a twist on that. The loser doesn't accept the results, calls on his or her supporters to take to the streets, and some members of the military break ranks to join the insurrection. The idea that members of the military might pick a side isn't just speculation. After Joe Biden was sworn in, more than 100 retired military leaders signed a letter implying the election was fraudulent. Quote, Our country has taken a hard left turn towards socialism and a Marxist form of tyrannical government, which must be countered now, the letter says, by electing Republicans. I learned about this letter from retired Major General Paul Eaton. He was one of the players in the war games. 
if there is a link to my name, it is that I was associated with rebuilding the Iraqi Armed Forces in 2003-2004. What, what role were you, you recruited to play? Uh, to opine how might the military react to a given outcome. And what were the concerns that I had with respect to the components of the U.S. military? When people were like, what would the military do in this situation? They turned to you. Correct. He says it's shocking for retired generals to question the legitimacy of the president and the courts that affirmed the election. When you have this 124 people who are challenging an election outcome, they are not operating in good faith and they are antithetical to the good order and discipline of the armed forces of the United States. Gilman agrees. Belief in the chain of command and the probity of the chain of command is the most precious thing that an army has. And that once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's awfully hard to put it back in. I asked General Eaton if the military is planning for these possibilities. I don't know, he said. If they're not, they sure should be. I also asked the Department of Defense. A spokesman said they don't comment on hypothetical scenarios. 2020 was not the first disputed election. Bush v. Gore went all the way to the Supreme Court. But Nils Gilman says there's another, more relevant example from a long time ago. It's actually happened in our history once before. And that happened in the election of 1876 and its aftermath. The race was between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel J. Tilden. Tilden won the popular vote, but the results in three states were in dispute. There was Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. There were competing slates of electors. With Inauguration Day drawing close, neither side would concede. There were rumors that a militia might swoop in to install Tilden in the White House. The president at the time was Ulysses Grant, who, as president, is officially commander-in-chief, but of course who had been, during the Civil War, the commander of the Union Army, right? So he had an enormous prestige in terms of commanding the military forces and sort of the unquestioning authority over the military. President Grant repositioned federal troops to guard the approaches to Washington, D.C. The deadlock continued until Congress passed an act authorizing a commission to decide the winner. The commission chose Rutherford B. Hayes, the loser of the popular vote, as the next president. Tilden got something he wanted, too. Incoming President Hayes would withdraw Union troops from southern states, which basically ended Reconstruction and set back civil rights for Black Americans by a century. A decade later, Congress passed an act providing for the orderly counting of the electoral vote. It has its flaws. If, in fact, there is a contested result of an election in the future, we still don't have a very clear mechanism, even after 2020 and 2021, for adjudicating disputed results of elections. What Niels laid out is, in my mind, a worst case, and not a low probability, but a reasonable probability, given the nature of the Republican Party, that appears to be prepared to win at all costs. Before we spoke, Nils Gilman cautioned me about giving too much weight to this whole exercise. War games, scenario planning, they're an essential tool, he says. But open talk about civil war and coups and military intervention, 
has a way of reinforcing itself. You look at all of the things that might happen, and you start to treat them as if they're inevitable. And they're not. Ideally, wargaming encourages strategies for avoiding the worst outcomes. My hope as a civilian is twofold. One is I very much hope that at the highest levels of the U.S. military, there is contingency and scenario planning for ways in which they might be dragooned into unwillingly into adjudicating political disputes in this country. And I hope that as a civilian, I never find out about this because this should happen behind closed doors because actually publicly discussing that the military is doing this would stoke the paranoid fears of many of those who would like potentially to do things to undo legal elections in this country. One person who might have a lot to say if there is scenario planning is the Joint Chiefs Chairman, General Mark Milley. But he didn't respond to our request for comment. Since the attack on the Capitol, Milley has been unusually outspoken for a Joint Chiefs Chairman. He's talking about things people don't really want to talk about, like extremism in the ranks. We don't actually know because we don't have good data. But let's just say it's one-tenth of one percent. That's 2,000 people. What if we had 2,000 terrorists, uh, ISIS terrorists or Al-Qaeda terrorists or Nazis or fascists or Ku Klux Klan in our ranks? That could be extremely divisive. This is the same man who walked across Lafayette Square with President Trump in his big show of force on June 1st, 2020. It's a hard pivot from that to this riff delivered at a budget hearing. It's not just extremism uh, and rooting that out for its own sake. Uh, It has to do with combat power and cohesion of our organizations uh, and the divisiveness that can inflict or or can infect our organizations and rip them apart. Next time on our final episode of We'll Be Wild, how the story of January 6th is being rewritten and what that might mean for the future of democracy. There is an act commonly referred to as the Ku Klux Klan Act that said, in essence, it's against the law to impede Congress from doing its constitutional duties. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I do my best to keep politics out of my job. But in this circumstance, I responded, well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? I am so upset that she is uh, advocating for no one to take a plea, using my family. Like, I don't know why any family would want another family to go through what my family went through. I I don't want to turn this over to my children. I want them to have, you know, a better life than I did. And I want them to grow up in a country where they feel love and compassion and empathy as the most resounding feelings. Probably the hardest moment was seeing him just cry. What would you tell the other people who are still to stand trial in these cases after watching a guilty verdict? Don't take a plea. Do not take a plea. Well, you know, history has a way of repeating itself. And sometimes you have to reaffirm things that happen. And I think it also says that even the president of the United States is not above the law. And uh, we're about to find out. We are absolutely about to find out.
Will Be Wild is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. It's hosted by me, Ilya Meritz, and Andrea Bernstein. Our senior producer is Kat Aaron. Our producer reporters are Christine Driscoll and Alice Wilder. Our associate producer is Marie-Alexa Cavanaugh. Our editors are Maddie Sprunkheiser and Joel Lovell. Fact-checking by Jane Drinkard. Our sound designer is Hannes Brown, who also composed the original music. Pineapple's head of engineering is Raj Makija. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Legal review also provided by Katie Ali Mohammadi Crown and Sarah Schwarzman at Donaldson Caliph Perez. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers of Pineapple Street, with support on Will Be Wild from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our managing producer is Candice Manriquez-Ren, senior producer is Eliza Mills, and executive producers are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. Thanks this episode to Carol Lennig, Eric Foner, Eric Schmidt, Joe Plensler, Rosa Brooks, Bethel Hopte, and the Radiolab team, and extra special thanks to retired General Joseph Langell.